0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Film Score podcast. Today, my guest is Robert Ikey Aubrey Lowe, who you might know from his score for the recent Candyman film, which was very unusual One really enjoyed it. It does some very cool things with Philip Glass's original theme, but also goes really far into doing its own thing. Rob's latest score is for the documentary Grasshopper Republic, which is filmed over the course of three seasons following these local grasshopper trappers. And so his score is very unusual because it often comes from the perspective of insects, of grasshoppers, using this sort of insect texture rhythm. So balancing These sounds and music, tones from the vantage points of humans and from the insect worlds. It's very unusual, very interesting. And I know that that's something that Rob and I talk about as well, of not underestimating audiences. And, of course, we jump onto other tangents as well, getting even into discussion of How to roll back the tide of the changes in music consumption or appreciation. But of course, you can find out more about Rob on his website, on social media. You can do the same for me. We'll say, I think in the last third of the interview, you might notice a change in Rob's voice. I was getting some weird sounds and had to do a little extra audio editing. So if you hear it sound a little different, that's why. And last week when I told you that things were going to get back to normal release schedule-wise, yeah, that might not have been true. It's looking like I might be doing weekly releases for a little bit. Just loaded up on too many great interviews, but that's a first-world problem. That said, for now, sit back and I hope you enjoy. Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. How have you been? Uh, I've been pretty well, yeah,
1: thanks. How how are you doing, Nick?
0: I'm doing all right. It's a little chilly in this Chicago uh, now early afternoon day, but yeah, I bought into that, so I I can't complain too much. Yeah, the the weather is definitely shifting right now. It's uh, <laughs> everyone everyone is starting to feel it, and yet I I can look outside my back porch and my my rose bush is still popping out fresh blossoms. So it hasn't gotten the memo yet. But for you, Grasshopper Republic coming out soon i think maybe when this releases it'll have just come out but how much excitement do you get when you have a new whether it's a solo release collaboration release or like this a score release coming out on the horizon i'm generally always quite excited about it i always like
1: putting my work out in the world i think that uh collaborations specifically are generally pretty exciting because i like the interplay and the dialogue between artists paying attention to the landscape and understanding how each can move you find compromises in those spaces you need to be acutely aware of how your collaborator is feeling and thinking about things forms of execution and so it's it's always nice to see the document of that thing in one way or another. And specifically with film, it is completely a, a collaborative and communal art form. So it's always exciting to see what can be built communally in an artistic space.
0: Well, and then using film as, as an example, or film, TV, um, a documentary, does that kind of go a step further as well, where if you're collaborating just on a song on an album you and your collaborators are all working until the the final piece is done, but here mm-hmm. you are you are one step in this broader collaborative process, and sometimes the the composer's coming in you're there at the very end, sometimes it's a little earlier, and so you don't necessarily know what the the true final piece is until it's out there so does that come as a a bit more of a surprise when? Take Grasshopper Republic or whatever else you want, and it is out, the final piece is there, and you get to hear your work amidst everything else that's that's been created.
1: Um, I think it's less of a surprise for me because the way I generally tend to work is to try to be involved within the process as early as possible. So just having that sort of holistic Overview of everything that's happening, the intentions of things, having conversations with the editor or the director about what any particular moment means at that given time. Yeah, I generally tend not to, I try not to come into a project on the tail end of it. With Grasshopper Republic, it was a little different. It was quite a long process to make the film, it took a little over three years. And that was due to the fact that the footage they needed, they weren't able to get until three years into the production. You know, and so they had, I think it was 280 plus hours of footage that Elise, the editor, had to cull through and find how to arrange that space to tell that story. So by the time I came onto it, I think they sent me a five-hour cut a five-hour rough cut of the film. The next cut I got was a three-hour rough cut, and then it slowly got whittled down to 94 minutes, which is what I believe it is now. So within that process, I was still very integral, having a lot of conversations about choices that they were making, giving them material, having them play around with it in the cut, and really sort of shaping and sculpting and, and finding what the film was so it was a nice process and you know not as long as i worked on other films you know i could go for as long as a year working on scoring a film the reasoning for that is to provide the most complex score that i possibly can to enhance the visual story
0: and the vision of the filmmaker and having that amount of time let's say you have a year does it ever get to the point where you're overthinking or adding too much? Or how do you know when you have that much time and that much ability to go, you know what, it's it's time to take a step back or, or pull back instead? I mean, it's
1: an ongoing process and I try to move with the edit. I try to, ultimately, the best way of working for me is to be able to provide the filmmaker initially with a library of work of my own so they can listen to those things, potentially play around with them in how they're thinking about shaping the film. And then I actually start writing. I start composing very early. When I come onto a project, I have a very clear intention of what I want to bring to the table and how I see the aural aspects of the story being highlighted in that space. And so I will generally try to start writing things if those things are resonating with the filmmaker, then we start to move along that path. And, you know, within the context of a a narrative fiction, ultimately I would always like to have that available for the filmmaker before they start shooting the film because then they're thinking about that sonic space as they're crafting the scenes. So it becomes a true dialogue where the sound can inform the visual and the visual clearly will inform the sound. That's my preferred way to work, and I have been in situations where that can't be the case, but it's a a project that I have an interest in, and I understand that it would be a situation in which I would be working with people that I would be able to develop a relationship with and develop a vocabulary with. That's something that's really important to me, to be able to have a vocabulary in that space. Things can move a lot easier,
0: and you can move sort of as a unified front. Mm. It's interesting how often I hear that come up, where when someone's looking for projects to work on, that the people they're collaborating with, who they are, what they've done, their personalities, that becomes, I suppose in some instances, the deciding factor. And I'm sure a big part of that is that that sort of facilitates the music you're able to make, the the broader art project you're being able to work on and create together.
1: Yeah, I mean, I truly feel that to be the case. And I can generally tell on the front end of a project whether or not it would make sense for me to do because I need to, I need to have a little bit of freedom in that space to have a point of view. And it's important for me to clearly to maintain the integrity of the work that I do in that space. So yeah, it's all about building those relationships and working with people that you can find a space to
0: inhabit. Well, and that's something that I've noticed about the scores that you're creating, where each one is, at least the four or five that I've heard, each one is quite distinct, but there's at least one through line in them, and and that is, to kind of over-distill it, they're quite Unusual and unlike most Mm -hmm. things that you're going to be hearing in film, TV, documentary, and so it's it's interesting that you're able to push these sonic boundaries a little bit in an industry, and I hate calling it that, but it's what it is. Yeah. But in in this broader art form that does have so many constraints, just pick any film. There are so many collaborators, so many voices. It I'm sure can be hard to to push that individually. So Mm -hmm. from your view, how much room is there for, from the musical perspective, for experimentation and for pushing those boundaries in film, TV, documentary? Um, I think it depends on the
1: project. I think it depends on the filmmaker. I think it depends on, ultimately, the production team and how much everyone is willing to support everyone else in that space because it needs to be a supportive nurturing space in order to create these things. And clearly there will, you will have struggles within the space, but it's most important, and that's why I will say no to more projects than I say yes to, because mm. I need to make sure that ultimately that support is there and we're able to work in a way in
0: which everyone's voice can be heard. And I'm sure part of that as well is if you're scoring a a Marvel film, a James Bond film, things like that, there's something that's much more established stylistically that sure. you can't have like a an ambient drone score for Ant-Man 4. I'd be interested in that, but I don't think yeah. most people would.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think there are tropes and formulas that people try to stick to because they think ultimately that they work but they become quite flat they become quite two-dimensional and not very exciting for me it's always important to be able to sign on to a project in which I can really think about what the work will entail and propose very concrete intentions for the things that I want to do And that's not to say that the ideas can't morph and shift throughout the process of the project, but I think ultimately the intention remains, which is the most important thing to me, to be able to say, okay, I have this idea. And through conversation and through the dialogue and and continuing to keep an open dialogue through the process, I can express my perspective on specific things and i can verbalize the specific intention of the things that i do say for example if someone hears it and says oh well i don't know if that works and then i can say all right well the reason i did this the way that i did it was because of x y or z and that continues the conversation and then we can actually have a dialogue about how each of us are feeling in that space and and what we think is, is necessary to move things along on that particular timeline. So it's about making sure that I listen and also making sure that I have space to be listened to. Hmm. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and as part of those conversations as well, how much, especially from the musical side of things, are you thinking about, the audience, because I'll say, and I don't think you would disagree, that a lot of the music you do is not something that the average person necessarily listens to on a daily basis. And so sure. do you think that we sort of underestimate the the sophistication of an audience member or their ability to appreciate a music that is a little more unconventional when it's used in the right situation, the right film, etc.?
1: Yeah, I absolutely do. I think that audiences are the way that I I find so many films in this world. Trying to placate to an audience or to tell the audience what they need to think or feel in that space, I think is ultimately very reductive because
0: mm.
1: humans are smarter than that. And this sort of lowest common denominator, oh, well... It worked over here, so it'll work here, so let's just keep doing the same thing. I think clearly, with the attention that the Candyman score received, which is a very unconventional score, I think that people understood that it was appropriate for the space of that film, and I think that's why it resonated with people, because it helped to tell the story, to carry the story, and to be a character within the landscape of the story. It's important for me to be able to play around with psychoacoustics and just the the concept of exciting the ear, because I think it, it should be experiential. The cinema is something that I think should be experiential and immersive if it has the potential to do so. And I think with Grasshopper Republic specifically, that was clearly an intention from the beginning, when Dan and Elise and Michele started talking about what the film was, how to be able to present the film because the film doesn't necessarily present as a documentary or what people would expect a documentary to be because nothing is explained within that space you are an observer within the space and also it's an interesting thing because I think that the way that the film was made is really the only way that it could have been made when you're talking about an American filmmaker a white American filmmaker making a film about a subject in africa and to be able to become a part of that landscape have a respect for that landscape garner trust from the trappers that are that you're filming in that space where it is not fetishistic there's no Mm. uh, exoticism that's attached to it it just becomes an exploration of this particular sphere within ugandan culture looking at the film from you know an ecological standpoint, grasshoppers as a sustainable food source, but also the potential problems with the chemicals used to make the lights glow brighter and treading over potential farmland. There's a lot in there, but also it's an interesting space to explore because you have this macro photography which exhibits the insect world and then you have the human world and the interplay and cross-pollination between those two worlds it ultimately starts to look like a science fiction film because of the sort of alien landscapes you get out of this macro photography that was also something very interesting for me to play with in that space and and conversations that we had quite a lot about the concept of science fiction within the space of a documentary but also looking at the film and thinking about, because the genesis of the film came from a photography project from Michele Sibiloni, who is one of the cinematographers on the film. He had been living and working in Uganda. He's uh, an Italian photographer and photojournalist. And he had been doing this these photo series that he was eventually going to turn into an art book and an exhibition. And at the time that he was working on this, he was showing Dan McCabe, the director, who was... Also living in Africa, but at the time he was living in Congo, working as a journalist. Dan had this idea about making a film about this process. So it's something that happened very naturally, and it also begs the question of where does this project live outside of cinema? Because potentially this is something that could live within an institutional space or a gallery space as a multi-channel sound and video piece. You know, so. There are a lot of aspects to it. It's beautifully shot. It works very much in the way that slow cinema does. That's something that I particularly love when thinking about films by Ben Rivers or Ben Russell or Steve McQueen. I mean, I would even put Chantal Ackerman in that that space or uh, Arpichapang, Veres at So that sort of vibe is something that, that speaks to me. And I think it's really lovely to be able to just inhabit a space, become immersed in a space and be an observer and and let it flow and not have anyone speak directly to camera, not acknowledge the camera Mm. and just continue on in the pathways of their own life within this situation that happens to be documented. And then with the score, it's meant to accentuate and have that excitation within that space as well.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned both, I think, the the ease in which foreign filmmakers can establish a sort of fetishization or exoticism and how the score, or, or, or a conversation around sort of science fiction as well. Because I think for the former, it's very easy for that to be where the music goes. I think so often sure. you, you hear that in... A Western American film that takes place in let's say the Middle East, you'll hear one of a handful of right. instruments that you hear all the time. Um and it and right. it kind of creates its own tropes. And obviously that's not I don't think exists whatsoever in this score. And and instead, as you said it, when you listen to it, especially if you listen to it without any context, without knowing the film to which it's connected, it sounds like it's I don't know, a a 70s synth sci-fi score instead and it's just Mm -hmm. such an interesting direction to have taken it and so what were those early conversations like with dan about establishing what the sonic palette was going to be
1: well that's that's the other thing for me that i do once i sign on to a project i take some time to establish a sonic palette so i sit by myself and work around a few ideas and say okay well The instrumentation for this particular film, I think, should be this, and then I start to play around with different ideas, and I present a sonic palette to begin with. But then the conversations that we had early on were very much within the realm of science fiction, very much within this sort of idea of immersion, and being able to play around with sound, and also due to the fact that there was so much rich diegetic sound in the film, It was interesting to play around with the sonic palette that I had created in a juxtaposition of those sounds, or finding a space where I could create a sound that would echo the diegetic sound, but not be the diegetic sound. And so then you have this sort of push and pull of reality versus fantasy or illusion and what those things are in that space. And so those are sort of the things that we talked about a lot initially, just starting to work through these ideas, find space for silence, find space for letting the diegetic sound bloom without the interference of the score or the, the interjection of the score. And so, yeah, that's, that's sort of where it
0: was. With that in mind, and you mentioned earlier, the film going from a, a five-hour rough cut through various incarnations down to the 94-minute final cut, How does that gradual transition affect your composing process? It's all about following the edit and not
1: getting too far ahead, which has happened before where I Mm. sort of get out in front and then I sort of have to pull back because I don't want to continue to double back on things. It was an interesting process because I was actually sort of making these bigger long-form compositions that were larger swaths that I was then taking a look at, pulling back, having a conversation with Dan and with Elise Arnold Spiegel, the editor. And really the three of us were the ones that were working on massaging and working around how the film needed to land in specific moments.
0: Mentioning you following the edit, the cut, as you're sending music in, composing it, sending it to to Dan and Elise, are there then instances where the edit instead follows the music and adjusts to what you've created? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a
1: two-way street. I think that's when it works best because you want those elements to be intermingled. You want that entanglement with the visual and the aural because I think that that makes the the strength of the work so much more. Mm. Putting a score onto a film, and it does work, but I feel like it's less successful when a composer comes in after the film has been cut, has been locked, and then scores on top of it, it's like you're tucking it in at night. It's not something that's fully a part of the conversation. And I think that instead of following directives, it's about actually having a conversation about what it needs to be and and coming to an agreement and understanding where things need to shift and move and where Things need to be compromised. Things need to be pushed for. You know, so it's it should be a process. And I feel like coming in after the film is done is less of a process and more of a job.
0: It seems like it's less of a, a collaboration as well, where it is It is a, a collaboration that's a, effectively a one-way street, where you, you and the, yeah. the director are collaborating, but it's only what you're doing is changing. Right, yeah. I also did want to touch on, I, I had been reading some fairly abstract concepts about viewing music through the lens of wildlife of nature take the insect the grasshopper in particular Mm -hmm. as a different way for us to kind of think about music is that something that you were doing here as well
1: yeah I definitely was thinking about the insect world the grasshopper world and then the larger insect world as you see a lot of different insects throughout film as well as the human world. and So I was trying to build a platform for both of those spaces and then find ways to intermingle those things and to have them crossover where you're getting a clear vantage point from the insect world and having another clear vantage point from the human world and then finding those spaces where they would crossover intersect.
0: How do you create or get into the, the mind space of putting together the the insect world vantage point? Because obviously it's, it's a jump compared to a human vantage point at which to some extent we all inhabit.
1: Well, I think that ultimately there were similarities that you would find between the two. I wasn't necessarily leaning into this idea of tonality in the way of scales or particular notation in either space. I think that there were things ultimately that were more tonal in the human world and things that were maybe a little more textural or more percussive in the insect world but there is a crossover between the two like i said and exploring different Hm. and that
0: that seems to follow the the idea that i've i've read that you've had before where your scores and approach to scoring and and you mentioned this briefly earlier as well tend to veer more toward sound design rather than the stereotypical melody-rich thematic romantic score that we think of
1: sure i mean there's a place for all of it i think that ultimately the scores that i make skirt the line between what is considered score and what is considered sound design and i think that's an interesting space to inhabit i think that we are generally seeing more of that within the landscape of film and television. And I think it's something that is quite interesting because it gives a fresh perspective on what those things actually mean. Most often before, and I think it becomes less so as time goes on, people consider things that have specific frequency values as musical. And generally that falls within... The space of a notation or scales whether it's western or otherwise and I think that things can be considered musical that are not conventionally or traditionally musical and I think we also see a lot of that globally there are different types of music from different parts of the world that one person might consider musical here and then the other person might Consider he's on the other side. Just this idea of exploring sound on a grander scale gives people the ability to understand these things as being musical or lyrical that they may not have before. And I think that's sort of where it sits with me.
0: And I think it's an interesting note, and it sort of goes to the what I'm thinking is an increasingly this this false idea of music in a sense as a universal language because. As you said, one person's music may not be somebody else's. Right. And I I do find it interesting that there is certainly a subset of people, of filmmakers, of film and television music fans that feel that way about some of the more unconventional approaches to film music. And yet I I find it very exciting that it seems to have an increase in popularity in the last several years. And even even a, a mainstream acceptance where you see hilder winning the oscar for joker or Or joker right i mean and and even volker bertelman winning for all quiet on the western front where you know there is this melodic was a three note motif that appears throughout and, and a couple other moments like that but then it's also still quite textural yeah and i don't know if it surprises you at all that there's this increasing adoption and acceptance among audiences among critics and among filmmakers of this style of music?
1: I think it has most to do with the fact that I think there's a potential for excitement in experiencing something new. Audiences have the potential to be far more open than Mm. what the industry gives them credit for. And I think that due to the fact that there have been these very specific traditions established in this space, I'm not at all a traditionals. And I think the only way for advancement is to be able to experiment and be open to something that you may not have considered before. I think that people are becoming more confident in that space and being able to relay that information or those experiences in the space of what is considered, I guess, entertainment. It has to do with people being more open, exploring their creativity, and being confident. If you are compelled to make a thing, the potential for others to be compelled to come along for the ride is greater.
0: And, and for you, whether it's from a, an actual audiovisual perspective or just hearing music more broadly, how often do you hear or see things that similarly excite you with what they're doing?
1: I think historically for someone that has been invested in film for as long as I have been just as a fan, the experiences that I had with things that were potentially a little left of center um growing up, being younger, finding interesting spaces and really being excited about exploring more of that, you know, different cinema from across the globe, different American filmmakers. For me, I've always had that, and those things speak to me at quite a volume, and have since I was very young. And now I'm starting to see things that are more available within the mainstream that are more exciting. And I think, I think maybe that's it. I think the subculture, if you will, cinema or or left leaning cinema, things that were a little more avant garde have always been around, but I think that they are more readily available these days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's due in part to what I was saying earlier about people being more confident, and courageous, and in, in putting potentially stranger things out in into this space. But also, you know, you have platforms like Criterion, Criterion Collection or Movie, which make a lot of those things more readily available to people. And, People are, I find, are willing to take a chance to sit down and watch something and experience something that's maybe outside of their wheelhouse. And due to that fact, I think you're you're starting to see more things that are a little less traditional in a mainstream space.
0: Do you see the same thing with music more generally of the increased availability of music? distribution because it, it wasn't sure. that long ago where it was exceedingly difficult to get more underground, more avant-garde music. I mean, I, I won't say I remember this. I remember reading stories of you follow the metal scene in Norway in the early 90s and they're getting tapes sent to them by friends in, in the US and vice versa. And it's- right. Uh huh. So it wasn't very long ago where those distribution channels were very narrow, and and now it's really swung the other way, almost too far.
1: I, I yeah, I would agree with that. I think yeah, there was such a specificity of, of certain subcultures and certain scenes that yeah, you had to be. They were sort of all in the cut. You had to know how to navigate those channels to get to those things. Uh, and now I think that it's more much more wide open. People are able to experience those things that were very narrow in, in scope in the spaces that they were able to to move around. That's a
0: fair assessment. And has that, do you think, had, had a similar effect on music as, as you mentioned it does have on film where there are now more people listening to and enjoying becoming fans of what were, you know, very avant-garde, very out there, very niche styles and, and artists?
1: Yeah, things are just, in general, more readily available, which in ways is good, but in other ways, it's less of a journey for people when you had to really be dedicated to seek out those things as opposed to having them readily available to you. So there's an ebb and flow to it, but yeah, I think things are definitely more readily available and people are more interested in exploring those things, but there are fewer steps that you have to take to get to there. These days,
0: I think it certainly created a, a connection. I remember when I was a kid, a teenager, spending long hours on, you know, whatever metal forums, trying to discover new things, and then discovering them and realizing there was no way I could get them in the first place. But it created right. so much more of an investment in a personal connection. And of think. course, yeah, now absolutely. now things feel so arms length and commodified
1: yeah it's a little disconnected in that way yeah it's it the commodification of these things has has grown exponentially and you know i think that's due to the fact that the world has moved in the way that it has over the last several decades is not great
0: do you think there's any any alternative to that any any way to wind back the clock or at least create something that feels a bit more personal and connected
1: Oh, sure. I think that, um, yeah, that's a much louder conversation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, I hit you with the, the impossible yeah. abstract question right at the end. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, I mean, shit. you know, I think I think a lot of it has to do with being able to disseminate information in a way that is not has no ulterior motive other than the fact that you just want to make the art available to people. I think that's that's a huge thing. I think commodification of these things is an absolute detriment. And I think that existing within a capitalist landscape, it's very hard to navigate. And you navigate it the best way that you know how. But if you are genuine in your excitement for a thing and mm-hmm. want to impart that experience to others and ultimately let them take it as they will, because everyone comes from a different vantage point, a different perspective. And, you know, I say this a lot, especially when I'm giving lectures or doing artist talks, that art is not precious. And once it's out in the world, it no longer belongs to you. And I think that if people are ready to accept that notion and let it live as it will, people can ingest it, pick it apart in the way that they do, let it wash over them, however they want to experience it and just let it live and understand that, say for the artist, there's something that means a very specific thing to the person that created that thing, but not being concerned with how it exists in the world and how others experience that thing. like, There are clearly very specific ways in which you can impart those things and say, okay, well, I'm putting this out there like this, here it is. But I don't know, I think Removal of that preciousness and just letting it exist, then people can experience it in the way that they know how to best experience it. I I don't know if that's quite the right answer. Well, Um, I don't know
0: if there is, I don't think there is any. uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm
1: kind of clutching at straws at this point.
0: I wish I'd have asked that 45 minutes ago because it's really interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a potential to roll it back. I think that if people... Another thing is is the fundamental breakdown of communication that I think social media has, in a large part, been a part of. There's an anonymity within social media and the internet where dialogues like this, even though we're, we're doing it on the internet,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we're actually having a conversation. And I think that there's been so much less of that due to the fact that people can sort of exist behind an avatar and the engagement is something that I feel has been lacking for many years and that fundamental breakdown if that's rolled back that could make for a more interesting space and I think people could find appreciation for things that they were unaware of in a a deeper way
0: Hmm. I think that's really true and I, I hope that at least. Hearing that will make some people sort of rethink things a little bit, maybe alter their forms of communication appreciation unfortunately i don't I don't think we'll be directly changing the landscape just from this, but at least you know no any, every <laughs> if, if if simply one person changes it, I think that's that's a win, but yeah, on that note, on what I hope is hopeful uh and optimistic. Rob, it was was great chatting with you. I I really appreciate you coming on to talk with me for a little bit, both about Grasshopper Republic and on these more abstract tangents.
1: Yeah, of course. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. And yeah, hopefully the goal is for people to be able to experience Grasshopper Republic. It's currently at film festivals and we'll be screening at the Doc NYC Festival in New York City. And then The score itself will be released November 17th through in beta records, which I'm very excited about. I'm very excited about that. The whole process of actually making the record itself
0: was really nice.
1: Talking about commodifiable objects, but, (laughs) you know,
0: That'll be exciting. It was just, I've, I've heard it quite a few times at this point. Really excited for, for people to dig into it because it's, it is exciting, interesting music.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Of course.